we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo on the program today. A little bit later, we're going to be talking about transportation and equity and the East Side Trail plan. Ashley Smith from Go Bike Buffalo will be coming up in about half an hour. She'll chat with Jay Moran about some of those issues. But first, I think we really need to get into it with Bishop Michael Badger. Part of the reason why he's here today is to talk about the Grieving Families Act pending right now with Governor Hochul waiting her signature. It's something that would change the uh, ability to sue and the ability to get compensation for all of the families of the East Side shooting. And along the way, he's able to talk about so many different equity issues, uh, including that, but not just that. Bishop Badger, thanks for being here. Dave, it's a pleasure. One of my favorite stations to listen to, so I'm excited to be here. Love that. Glad you're here. Before the program, we were talking in general about the East Side and about the conversation that needs to be had. And you crystallized it. You summarized it really well when you said, we don't need benevolence. We need investment. Absolutely. Uh, the reason why the community looks like it does is the divestment that happened over the last uh, 50 years. And so to change that, you need investment. You don't need benevolence takes care of an immediate need. But long term, you're still faced with this the same circumstances. And so what we, we, what we need in, in our community is those that are willing to come in and partner and recognize that there is business opportunities that can benefit uh, everybody involved. Six months after the shooting, are we stuck on benevolence or is there still a need for that and the investment? I think there's still a need for both. Uh, but I think that the latter is the most important. I think you have to change the demographics. Um, while we need, you know, low and me medium income housing, you cannot just put poor people on top of poor people and then expect box stores and others to come um, just out of goodwill. They're coming because they want to make money. That's why they're in business. So in order to do that, you need the type of demographics that will support, you know, a, a Wegmans or a, a Walgreen or some of the other uh, box stores. A community that has middle class blacks, poor blacks, rich blacks will maybe still be segregated, but it will be the kind of community you say that would attract an Aldi's or Wegmans, what have you. Absolutely. And and there is a, a middle an upper middle class uh, minority community that needs housing. Some your teachers, your your police officers, your firefighters, um, the medical corridor, 
uh, where you have uh, nurses and doctors that need places. They want to live close to where they're working. And that opportunity is not afforded right now. And we have a lot of vacant space. People just have to have the vision to see that you could really make something that will be appealing to everyone. I don't want to parse your words, but but let me probe more into this idea of benevolence versus investment. Is there a lack of investment because there is a lack of benevolence? Is it intrinsic racism that people are not necessarily aware of, or is it truly a a lack of benevolence? Is it is it ill thoughts? Is it bad feelings? Well, I, I I think there might be some of that, but I think a lot of it just is ignorance. You know, not understanding, you know, the plight of what has happened in East Buffalo or the East Side, however you want to phrase that, and recognizing that it didn't get there by itself. It got there because intentionally you put a throughway through the middle of it and and ruined a beautiful uh, park, you know, Olmstead Park there. You you, um, um, took away a lot of the opportunities you know, and, 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 and so when you had Bethlehem Steel and Republic Steel and Chevy and all of those places go, and, 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 and then there was no investment made to ensure that housing and, and other things were kept up, you know, this is what you get. You get the third poorest city in the country. It wasn't always that way. It happened through a series of events. Now, whether that was intentional, um, I, I'm I'm not prepared to say that it was intentional. The intent of the Kensington was to connect two yes, areas. Yes, that was intentional. With, without without yeah. awareness of the fact they were splitting a neighborhood, or was it just a matter of we don't care? The three I, I think to go I here. think in that case we don't we don't care. Yeah, because we're going to make it easy to get in and out of the city to our jobs. And here's the interesting thing, you know. Uh, the investments that were made, Amherst didn't get to be Amherst because people were smarter. They got to be Amherst because you decided to take the University of Buffalo and build it and out there, it there. And, and, and build all the infrastructure with tax dollars to make that happen. Had UB been built downtown like it was supposed to, we're talking about a totally different city. Had the, you know, the stadium uh, or, or the rapid transit had not just been down Main Street like it w- and, and went to other places. You know, there were so many mistakes that were made because a, a couple of individuals decided what was going to be best for them and didn't look at the whole of this community. Let me let me pick on one of those examples. Is it bad that the new Buffalo Bills Stadium is going to be in Orchard Park? I think it's unfortunate. I, and and I, I, I understand to some degree why it's being put out there. But for me, as a person that grew up in Buffalo, it was always a hope and a dream that once again, I remember War Memorial Stadium. Sure. I lived on Johnson Street where people would park and, and go to the stadium. I would have loved to seen a, a stadium in the city. Now, whether that was financially prohibitive because of, you know, eminent domain issues and other things that the infrastructure that would cost maybe $750 million more um, and, and it became financially prohibitive, I get it. I, I get it. But 
for my druthers, I would have loved to have seen it in the city of Buffalo. Bishop Michael Badger is here from the Bethesda World International Bethesda World Harvest International Church. Yes, right there on Main Street in Utica. We're talking a little bit about investment on the east side. We will, before the program's done, also touch on the Grieving Families Act pending before Governor Hochul. You are in an interesting position. You have the facility there on Main Street mm-hmm. near Utica. You're talking about investment, and to a large degree, you have put your money where your mouth is. You you are a landlord for retail business along Main Street. Yeah, it's interesting, Dave. When I came back to Buffalo from Charlotte in, in January of 1990, it's been 32 years, um, our church, which was the old Regency Theater, mm-hmm. historically, a uh, little bit of information, the last silent movie was played at that theater. Uh, and um, so it was an, an old building that looked like it should have been condemned. And we put $3.5 million into that building, revitalized it, changed it. And then the building next door to us that would take us to East Utica was in, in disrepair. We talked to uh, the owner of it. He sold it to us. And we redid that building. And now we're putting some affordable apartments upstairs. We've got um, commercial space downstairs. So uh, altogether, we've invested um, over $5 million on that main uh, East Utica Square area right there. Is it easy for businesses to set up shop? Even And, and everyone says Jefferson, but, but let's look at that, uh, mm. that desolate stretch of Main Street. Is it easy for businesses to set up shop there? I think there's an opportunity f- for business, but th- it has its challenges because of, you know, you're looking at the busiest uh, subway station in the city right there at Maine and Utica, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of traffic that happens there. And, and, and we have some challenges because of, of drug treatment centers and, and different things like that. But uh, I, I still think that there's great opportunity uh, for for business right there because of the amount of people uh, that um, visit that area every day. I think of um, the first President George Bush and his whole idea of a thousand points of light. Mm. The idea was that volunteer groups and faith groups and people out there make those thousand points of light, that it didn't necessarily have to be government. That's kind of what you're doing with the church, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I, I believe that... Um, the true gospel has to impact outside of the four walls or what, what does it mean to the community? If, if, if you're talking about reaching out and making a difference, if it's just in the four walls, then why are you necessary? Uh, I, I think you have to be able to impact outside of, of the four walls of the church to really be what Jesus preached and taught. Does that absolve the government for not doing enough? No, I, 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 the government government must play its part. Let's face it, we don't have the type of dollars that government has. But I think government shouldn't exclude faith-based organizations from being a part because those are our, we pay taxes too. And, and wait so, a minute, churches don't pay taxes. Churches don't, but the people in them do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, and and then the, the mission that we do uh, of feeding. Of, of clothing, of, you know, like this, uh, right now my wife, uh, 
and and I'm making this announcement, but our upstairs, our multi-purpose room is filled with toys. I mean, literally filled from top to bottom with toys that we'll give away to hundreds of families uh, in the next two weeks. So, you know, those are things that we do Every year, we, you know, during Thanksgiving, we feed families. We have coke giveaways, all of that. We spend our own money uh, to do that, as well as we work with uh, other groups to do that. You know, all of that happens because there is a mission that says, you know, we need to be our brother's keeper. And I think in all the analysis of the things that have happened since the shootings on 514, there's been a lot of discussion about the tight-knit nature of the East Side. Mm. The fact that there is, not that the church isn't part of it, but the fact that there is a pre-existing, strong sense of community. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Buffalo is a, is, is a big family. Uh, I guarantee you that uh, when you meet someone, um, if you talk long enough, you know yeah. somebody that they know or their their kin, you know. Um, you know, when we when we look at those that the Buffalo ten that lost their lives, uh, I remember Miss Whitfield, I Garnell and Robin and I went to School Ninety together, Genesee Humble together. You know, we were we were childhood friends, and I remember Miss Whitfield as being one of the mothers of the community. And when we were growing up, you know, uh, people like Miss Whitfield would would correct you, you know, say. Boy, you better stop doing that. Mm. You get away from that. You know what I'm saying? They took ownership of the fact that they were we were all their children. And in your congregation, there are a lot of people that knew the ten. Oh, absolutely. Everybody knew somebody. Yeah. Or had family that was were a part of that. Yeah. How's the community doing? Uh is there still grief or or I, I go back to your earlier premise. Now is the time for uh, benevolence, uh, investment rather than benevolence. Um, Do we still have people who are grieving and suffering and hurting? I would I would definitely say to the families that lost loved ones um, and, and, and to even those that saw that. Absolutely. There is still uh, the process of grief that is happening. Um, I I think for 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 many people. there is now the issue, okay, what what is going to happen out of this that will make this tragedy uh, turn into some type of triumph? People you think are ready to turn that corner? I think so. Okay. I think so. Uh, I think that that needs to happen in order to give some sense that this was just you know, that people didn't just senseless lose their life and nothing positive came out of it. All right. When we return, we're going to talk a little bit more about those families, about some of the grief in the community. Bishop Michael Badger is here from Bethesda World Harvest International Church. He's one of the people that has spoke out recently about the Grieving Families Act. It's on Governor Hochul's desk right now. It has been approved by the State Assembly and the State Senate. It would change a lot, and we'll get into that when we return. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot, and your money will support high-quality news and information. 
for fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED-PBS, WNED-Create, and WNED-PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And coming up in just a bit, we'll hear from the people at Go Bike Buffalo. But first, continuing our discussion with Bishop Michael Badger from the Bethesda World Harvest International Church, Maine and roughly Utica area, someone who has uh, been immersed in the community and talking a lot about what the community needs, what the grieving families need. Let's let's get into the uh, the whole idea of this Grieving Families Act. It's been approved by the Senate. It's been approved by the Assembly. It's awaiting the signature from Governor Hochul. It would do a bunch of different things to change the the litigation system. There are about 47 other states Mm -hmm. where people are allowed to include grief in the financial compensation after a death in the courts. It is uh, the case in about 47 other states where people are allowed to include domestic partners as someone who has lost a loved one if they take uh, this kind of situation to court for compensation. Why do you think that that is, above all, an equity issue? I want to read a quote. Uh, you, you had a news conference with uh, Crystal People-Stokes, the, the assembly minority leader, and a uh, majority leader, rather, and you said, we have the opportunity to update a wrongful death law that was written at a time when my life and the life of any black person, woman, or person of color was not considered equal. For you, this is a historical thing. This this goes back to antebellum for you, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's a very antiquated law that happened in the 1800s. Uh, and basically, the law uh, only awards you according to your ability to earn a living, whatever your economic status was. And you would think for a progressive state like New York that we wouldn't be stuck back in the 1800s with a law like this. Um, it doesn't take into effect uh, the, the type of loss and the type of pain that happens when you lose a loved one, and not just emotionally, but economically. You know, uh, if that person is a senior, you know, now I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm uh, a mature adult now. You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and if, you know, uh, I was to lose my wife, um, you know, it has an impact because a lot of the things that she does for me that don't necessarily, I can't quantitate financially, but yet it, it does impact things in my life. 
to to say that because she is not earning money that it doesn't impact me both emotionally and financially. And yet, if we look at pure economics, uh, out of the 10, the youngest was Roberta Drury at 32. Mm -hmm. But there were one, two, three, four, five, six of the victims over age 60. Uh, Ruth Whitfield, we spoke of her earlier, 86 years old. If If we're doing an analysis of Ruth's value on this earth and basing it purely, purely on future earning power, at age 86, she's not worth as much. That's right. And 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 uh, who who should determine that for this family? You know, how can you tell me that my mother's worth is is less than someone else's because of her ability to earn a living? And so we're putting a dollar amount on what people's economic status is. And I can't believe in New York State that that's still an issue. The attorneys and legal groups that are arguing against this bill, or at least perhaps encouraging Governor Hochul not to sign it, have said it, it'll result in huge, huge um, settlements, that it will in some cases um, break the bank, as it were. How do you respond? Well, you got 47 other states, as you mentioned, as not breaking their bank. Okay. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that... Uh, because of strong lobbyists, and and the, and this was passed by the assembly, and you know both both uh, uh, houses. And so, why are we still in a situation where we haven't gotten this signed yet by the governor? And and the, and the bottom line is, you've got big interests, special interests, that have put a lot of pressure on the governor not to sign this bill. Can you name names? I don't want to press you, but. Uh... What groups are pushing back? Well, I think insurance companies, you know, would, would push back on it. I think, you know, um, your, you know, medical institutions would push back on this. You know, um, any large corporations that could be held liable um, for that type of uh, award, I think, would push back on it. I have heard that the, I've talked to attorneys representing family members. And many of them obviously are contemplating lawsuits, preparing lawsuits, but said they really don't want to file them yet until they know what's happening with this law. Right. Well, in, in order to, and I, I know John Elmore, I've talked with John, who's representing a couple of families. Mm-hmm. He says, Bishop, it's going to cost me upwards over a million dollars to represent this family, you know, um, to invest that kind of money. You know, you need to be able to ensure that um, it's 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 worth the the investment. And and right now, because of the way the laws have been written, you know, for many of these people that are are seniors and have you know surpassed their uh, significant earning years, this law says that your life is not worth as much. The other part of it that uh, is worth note. Grieving families. It changes the definition of a family member. Yes. Well, and and, and family has changed uh, in society over the years. Um, And, you know, who am I to determine who your family should be or how you define family? I think that that's up to every individual to define that. Uh, I don't want to take issue with you, but I'm surprised to hear a minister go there. Because in so many cases, uh, the issue of who you love, uh, who you define as your family member, 
is sometimes in conflict with religious belief. Yeah, and and um, I, I, that's true. Um, but here again, the one of the things that I believe about the gospel is that here's what God says. He says, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. You choose. God always gives us the opportunity to choose. And so who am I to take away the choice of people? I think you have the right to choose um, who you want to love, but I, I don't think you can impose your beliefs on me the same way I don't want to impose my beliefs on you. All right. Bishop Michael Badger is with us from Bethesda World Harvest International Church. Remaining uh, five minutes or so here, and I, I almost don't want to ask this question because I think in your case um, the faith is self-evident. But are you optimistic? Do you think that when you look at the scope of all the things that need to be decided and improved on the east side, that there's a chance that those things would happen? Are you optimistic? I have to be. I have to be. I, I, I think the challenge that the, the east side faces is a leadership challenge. I think for too often we've, we've looked to our politicians to be our leaders. I think by its very nature, poli politicians uh, play a role that have to, to compromise. That's the very nature of it. I think we need more independent voices in our community that will speak truth to power and, and be uncompromising in what needs to happen. And so I'm hoping that through entrepreneurship and 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 that gives people an independent voice. Too much of our community is dependent upon government, upon the uh, public dollars, and it limits your ability to to have an independent voice. We talked earlier about the nature of the community, the idea that yes, it is tight knit, uh, that everybody knows everyone. Mm -hmm. But there are people involved in urban planning that say, yeah, there's a sense of community, but the institutions or the structure or the uh, organizations that really help support a community aren't necessarily there. And if we're only turning toward government to be those community builders, we're falling short. Sounds like you'd agree. Well, I, I, I think that the church in our community has to be the, the mainstay. It, it has always been that. And, and, and I think that government has to realize that the, the, the one institution that has the infrastructure necessary to bring about change is the church. So you cannot say that because um, this is a non-for-profit or a religious organization that we don't want to work with you because many times they have the, the infrastructure necessary to do housing. Uh, to create opportunities, you know what I'm saying? So I, I, I think that we, we have to, um, I think the east side of Buffalo is much different. The, the role of a pastor on the east side is much different than it is in Amherst. My colleagues in Amherst can just preach on, a, on, on Sunday. I am, you know, a counselor, a, an accountant, an attorney, you know, uh, you, you, you play many different roles in a sense because of the needs of that community. And your contention is those needs are greater. Those needs are greater uh, because they have no other uh, place to turn to. How much of a role does a church group, as you've described it, play in desegregation? There's the famous Martin Luther King quote that it is the most that was Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Mm. is the most segregated hour on the planet because there are black churches and white churches. 
Uh, how do you get over that diversity divide? Well, I, I think when you go to many of the suburban churches, you will see black families in there. Uh, but I think it's very challenging to see white families at your black church. churches. Yeah. And I do have several um, that, that, but I think it's more of a challenge to be under black leadership because that's not the norm. That's not how people were brought up. Interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but but you're looking at it truly culturally. Absolutely. Yeah, culture it means how we live, right? I, I, now, see, I, I was approaching it primarily in my mind as a geographic thing. I live near here, therefore I go to the church that's near here. And that the segregation of the community, therefore, informs the segregation of the population of the congregation. No. You're, ta- you're taking it further. Yeah, well, most of my, the, the, the parishioners in my church don't live in the community, don't live in that neighborhood. They come from all over. Okay, I've had uh, members come from Canada. Mm. You you see what I'm saying to to the church. So, uh, the community church I don't think is is something that you necessarily see in most churches. Uh, they're coming from all over. Uh, and like I said, I I know many black families that go to the chapel and other places. You know, outside of the community because they feel that that's where their need is being met. Um, I'd like to see that same type of uh, reciprocation. 29 minutes, and we didn't even touch on education. I know. Right? <laughs> Bishop Badger, we have to have you back. We'll, I, I'd uh, we'll, love to come back. We'll talk more about uh, education at some other time. Michael Badger, Bishop Michael Badger, Bethesda World Harvest International Church, right there on Main near Utica. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you, Dave, for inviting me. Coming up next, Jay Moran with Go Bike Buffalo. This is WBFO. When you meet with your trusted advisors to review your estate plan, please consider asking them to name Buffalo Toronto Public Media as a beneficiary in your will, trust, insurance policy, or retirement account. Your gift will ensure the voice of public radio continues for generations to come. For more information, visit wned.org legacy or contact Colleen Miller at cmiller at wned.org. Thank you. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit wbfo.org to sign up today. Our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world. Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Thanks very much for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, Interested in the topic that we have coming up here, we're going to talk about a very significant grant that's coming to Buffalo. It's going to benefit the east side in a very specific way. Our first, well, let me introduce our guest. We have uh, Stephanie Simeon. She is the executive director of Heart of the City Neighborhoods. Thanks, Stephanie, for being here. Thank you for having me. And also Ashley Smith. Go Bike Buffalo. Uh, Ashley is the deputy director. Hi, Ashley. Thank you, Jay. All right, so thanks for coming in, and what we're getting into here now is this NYSERDA grant, and I know that we're kind of getting off here, but the, the, the point of it is 
is the East Side Trails Project. Now, this is something I, I love trails. It's one of the <laughs> things I love about Western New York. They're, they're emerging everywhere. I didn't know anything about the East Side Trails Project. Who wants to explain? Give me an overview here. Sure. I'll jump in, Jay, just to say that the East Side Trails process, we've done a lot of work so far to try to keep that as close to the community as possible. So this is in some ways, uh, this conversation, widening uh, okay. that loop for everyone. Um, but we've been focused on making sure that the neighbors that are most uh, you know, impacted and closest to these potential trail facilities are the neighbors that we're focused on engaging so far. Um, these projects would extend the existing Skajakwita Corridor Trail, uh, which meets Main Street near the Delavan Station um, and the footbridge that crosses 33. If people are familiar with that, it would include that trail um, that does exist today um, and is under City of Buffalo ownership and parks control. Is that the ga um, uh, Gator Parkway? Or? That is not. Oh, okay. So that's uh, where the Skajakwita Corridor oh, sorry, uh, is yeah. buried uh, ah. actually below there. Okay. Um, and then we're looking on for on-road connections to connect that facility uh, with, you know, revamped and, and overhauled mm -hmm. uh, with an extended William Gator Parkway. So William Gator Parkway has an existing side path, but there's a lot, it lacks a lot of amenities. Um, and there's the opportunity to connect that with the North Buffalo Rail Trail to form a greater connection um, and make sure that the communities uh, within the east side are able to access all of these uh, facilities that exist more broadly have to offer. Let me uh, turn that in, then to, to Stephanie and she can explain this better than I. So then we're talking about a rail project or mm -hmm. a, a project of this sort on the east side. At the same time, your focus at the uh, heart of the city neighborhoods is housing. Yes, affordable housing. And when you look at affordable housing, you want to look at what amenities a person can have other outside of the built environment. And so to my colleague's point here, we're looking at joining communities. So I, I believe, and I'm geographically challenged, <laughs> but we're looking at joining Lovejoy, Masson, and mm -hmm. University District um, through these trails and then connecting it to a much larger trail Correct. towards the Skajakwita. And let's throw in uh, Hamlin Park also. I yes. don't want to miss our neighbors there. Yes. Um, we've also had the Trinidad <clears throat> Block Club um, and some of their uh, community engaged as well. So one of the things that you look at when you're joining these communities is what do they have in common? Um, and they have very old housing stock. Hamlin Park does have the benefit of having a significantly strong, engaged community block club. And so we wanted to make sure we partner with them to say that as we bring on these trails, as we enhance the way that you use your community, we want to make sure that um, the neighborhood becomes primed for other resources. And so we wanted to make sure that we dealt with the main concern that came out of all the community engagement, which was gentrification. And for right. many people, that's a you know big G word, but as an urban planner, there is a way to make sure that the neighborhood has an equitable plan in place to make sure that when private investment does decide to come in, the neighborhood is ready where they're not spectated upon. And so that's why we wanted to make sure that if we're joining these really unique old communities, uh, historically African-American communities, we wanted to make sure that as we work on ways to enhance it through these trails, that nothing was going to be taken away. Sure. And uh, the gentrification issue is obviously huge. At the yeah. same time, I just want yeah. to make sure, though, or, or get some perspective on this, if and we'll even say when, when yeah. this project is complete, do we have an understanding that that is going to increase 
private investment into neighborhoods? Is that is that something that follows? Yeah, Jay, this isn't a stat that I have with me this morning, um, but we've seen the country over uh, rails to trail conversion. We were mm-hmm. talking earlier about the fact that this will use some former uh, railroad right of way. Um, they are often a harbinger for an increase in property values. And it really makes sense when you think about the resource that these facilities can be for a community in a neighborhood. Um, they certainly attract investment. People enjoy them. It creates a space that people can go, can gather, can walk, um, clear their head. And that's absolutely what you want in your neighborhood, right. <laughs> what you right. want in your community. And right. so as soon as you see these facilities um, in, you know, the na- in the neighborhoods and in the community, we expect to see people want to live there. Um, and that's going to come with some increased attention. And we want to make sure the people that are living there now are the people who get to benefit from these facilities. Right. And so one of the things that we were thinking of is tying it with doing an owner-occupied rehab. So working with the folks that already own their homes in these neighborhoods that are in proximity to the trails and then providing them with small grants to do the repairs. So that if a spectator would come come by, they wouldn't say, well, let me just offer you $40,000 for your house that we consider to be in disrepair. And then someone is enticed by that. We're going to say, no, we're going to give you that money to do the roof, the windows, doors, whatever is needed so that you can maximize the life of that home that you're in and then still be able to benefit from the equity that is going to be built from that rehab. I don't want to get off the topic too yep. much, but since I have you here, that is an issue right now already yep. in the in the east side of Buffalo. Yep. That people are coming. Will we buy houses for cash? Mm-hmm. It's all over. You can see the signs on every little thing, um, on every on the electric pole. It's like we buy your house for cash. What we've done at Heart of the City, we've been able to make sure that we um, have a proactive approach. And the best approach was to support unoccupied units with rehab assistance up to $40,000. And we've noticed that that doesn't, it doesn't take away gentrification, but it definitely has the spectator. They're going to have to come up with a higher price. Gotcha. And they're not going to willing, they're not willing to do that. All right. And, and then to add to that, or just to build on the idea then for you, the homeowner who's thinking, Oh boy, it'd be nice to get some cash. Hold on because a major improvement Mm -hmm. is coming to your neighborhood Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. In terms Mm -hmm. of this trail project. What would it be, let's talk about then the benefits for the residents. What, what, how, you know, like I said, I have my own, I guess, inert love for these types of things. It mm. sounds great to me. What a great place to walk, great place to ride my bike. Right. But what benefits, what, what, what's going to be the benefit beyond home ownership and home value? What's going to be the benefit to the neighborhoods? Yeah, the benefit will be that people have a safe alternative to our current city street. Are, are, are the current city streets unsafe? Uh, yes, I would absolutely say um, coming from Go Bike and, and from our perspective, um, city streets are not safe enough. Um, we issued a report earlier this year uh, showing crash and injury rates across the city network to be able to highlight uh, areas that are more dangerous than others. Um, and you'll see some of the roadways in these communities are among the most dangerous in the city. So it's really absolutely critical that people have an alternative. For Go Bike, we want to see people, no matter what mode they choose, and knowing, especially in Buffalo with our median income, that sometimes a personal automobile is not what you can spring for to afford. So we need to see 
transportation facilities and networks that can give people dignity no matter what mode they're choosing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you walk, if you take the bus, if you take your bike, and maybe you combine these in order to get where you need to go, these facilities, uh, both uh, legs of it connect with transit stations. The William Gator Parkway extension component of this would connect at LaSalle Station, which is also poised for some redevelopment currently. And so there's a lot of opportunities for what this could connect to there, what kinds of resources could be available on site, and just a short bike ride or walk away from most of these neighborhoods and a safe one now mm -hmm. um, with these facilities. And the Skajakwita leg connects again at Delavan in Maine. Um, where that train station is as well. Um, the Delavan route is a popular bus route. So the potential for interconnectivity here is also really critical um, and a com key component of, of where Go Bike and Heart of the City neighborhoods are partners on this uh, going forward. Absolutely. And just as a, a little bit of a disclaimer, uh, we guys should note that uh, Ashley rode her bike in today on this rainy day. Yes, she did. Yes, it's really uh, where I can share with people who are listening this morning. It's quite pleasant um, once you have the appropriate uh, wear. The Dutch have a great saying, there's no bad weather, only bad clothing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> very nice, very nice. With us uh, this morning, Ashley Smith and also Stephanie uh, Simeon. Uh, what about the, the neighborhoods right now in terms of mm -hmm. what this project could mean? But where they are right now, what are they, what are these neighborhoods lacking? Yeah, so, you know, we like to look at it from an asset-based community development approach. And so I think, you know, people who pay attention and who are your readers, they already know what some things are missing. So, you know, we want to use this opportunity to talk about the things that they have. Um, we have a strong community. We have people who have gone through so many pandemics before the health before COVID. Sure. We've had people who have gone through the crack cocaine pandemic. We have gone through so much. Um, and now we have people who are saying, I want to live here. They choose to live here. We don't have to market the neighborhood. They want to live there. There are um, a burgeoning entrepreneur community coming in. People are um, taking advantage of what would look like missing teeth. So these vacant housing, we have the vacant structures. We're looking at people who are um, partnering in land trusts. We're looking at folks who are doing gardening, urban agriculture. So there's a lot happening in the, in the east side. And so we just want to be able to use the resources that we've been able to come in, which is a very competitive grant, to just 10x the way people are living and the way people have um, experienced the east side and, and help them with branding and help them say, no, you can do this and this is available and we want to make sure that we prime the neighborhood for those kind of resources and do it make, and make sure that it's culturally appropriate as we do that. You know, I'm, I apologize, Ashley, but when you were talking, you brought about seven different issues that we could have probably gotten yeah. into in other shows, but uh, we'll hold off on that. I'm sorry, yeah, Ashley. No, I just want to jump in to fill that in a little bit and offer just a couple Please. of names for partners Perfect. that we've been working Perfect. with. Um, you know, as Stephanie's saying, there's, you know, such a large base that we're working with. Mm -hmm. um, we've had the pleasure through this East Side Trails project of connecting with the Northland, uh, the Northland Beltline Taxpayers Association, the Norfolk Avenue Block Club, Hamlin Park Community and Taxpayers mm -hmm. Association, with the Restore Our Community Coalition, Trinidad Neighborhood Association, Mount Olive Baptist Church and their Development Corporation, 
Uh, I may be missing the Del Grider Community Center. There's so many organizations doing great work uh, across these communities. And we're really stepping in and looking to work with them. Um, and a lot of, I think, the process so far has been getting to know, connecting uh, with the visions that they all have mm-hmm. and being able to really incorporate and lift that vision. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking also in that context about the Fillmore Square Garden um, and the work that Rita Gay has been doing there for years. Um, they yes. have a strong vision um, for what can be happening on Fillmore Avenue. And this is a space where we are able to connect some resources to that as a broader picture. And it, it's interesting you, you bring up the community engagement. We did mm-hmm. talk about this just a little bit before we went on the air. And, and it, it seems like you're very sensitive to the idea that you want to co- use this as an opportunity to connect these neighborhoods mm-hmm. to improve, perhaps, perhaps, I guess it's always depending on your opinion of improve neighborhoods, but you don't want to be mandating no. to neighborhoods. What about that, though, in terms of, we, we touched upon this a little bit before, getting people to be involved right now at this stage of history, not only in terms of, of the world, but right. in terms of Buffalo and East Buffalo yeah. since May 14th. Yeah. Since May 14th, it's been really difficult for groups to, for people to come in groups. Um, you know, we already had to deal with the fact that we weren't able to do that. We had to safe, <clears throat> excuse me, safely distance because of the pandemic and health concerns. Many of the communities that um, Ashley and I are working with um, daily are largely senior communities. So we also have to be very um, understanding that they may have existing health conditions. And so that would have made it really difficult for them to meet t- together anyway. Sure. Then you add in the the, the, the massacre that happened, which said to people, it kind of went in their minds that we're not safe. Even and in the safest places. In the safest places. You know, a na- nationwide we're noticing that people aren't safe in places of worship. And this is beyond just, you know, um, these are multiple religions that are having trouble with keeping their people safe in those spaces. The children aren't safe in schools. So in many cases, where are people supposed where are people supposed to go? And so this is why if, you know, as we're working together here, we're saying, okay, you know what? We can't do a lot of, about that. A lot of these things are beyond our control. But if we can make uh, your walk down the street safe, where we can deal with, you know, we can't deal with, you know, the the, the, the distressed communities, the socioeconomic status that has that is known, you know, nationwide for for Buffalo, the poverty status. We can't do a lot about that. But if we can make your um, your walk around your neighborhood, if your kids can play across the street, if they can go to a place that is safe, if we can do something with the lighting, if we can provi- make sure that we work with the city to provide you with um, curbs and safe streets and safe walks, then we've done something. We have done something to allow someone to have a better quality of life. Because right now when we're trying to meet with people, we have to do things virtually. Okay. People still just do not feel safe meeting in large gatherings. And I think... Um, you know, churches across uh, across Buffalo will have the same concern. There's a, there's a huge decline in people coming together for that. They just don't feel safe. So, uh, like you said, Ashley, earlier that um, this kind of is trying to get the word out a little bit more expansively about this project. What are the steps that are going to be taken to to then get that word out to all of these locales? And then, as Stephanie was uh, talking about here, Bringing everybody together. I mean, yeah. what, what, what's what's the engagement process moving forward? 
Yeah, moving forward, as you know, we take a breather for the holiday season and then come back early next year, we'll have a public meeting on the calendar, um, you know, once we head into January, and that will be our next broader public interface. So we'll be working together to make sure that there are multiple access points for that, limiting barriers, as Stephanie's saying, is a huge part of this for us, um, and just reducing barriers to access uh, also for people within the infrastructure in their communities. What about when you talk about barriers, let's talk about the barriers that might exist. I want to be optimistic about this happening. What are, what are the barriers that could keep this from happening? Mm-hmm. What, what do we see in terms of opposition to these types of programs? Because, I mean, you know, from my perspective, just one man's opinion looks great to me. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'll say with this Nicer to Clean uh, Neighborhoods Challenge Award to LISC New York, this secures most of the funding that we need in order to complete these projects. So funding is typically a large barrier that you have to cross. And and that's one that I'm really excited to say for this audience that we've crossed. Um, What comes next is, you know, as Stephanie's mentioned, making sure that we're addressing the concerns that are the most prevalent in the community um, and making sure that we're meeting those needs first. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's a critical barrier for us to cross in implementing this project is making sure that we have heard, you know, loud and clear from the neighborhoods that are the most directly impacted what they need to see in order for this to be a success. Because even if we have the funding to build them, if we can't build them to the neighborhood specifications, it's not a successful project. Um, In terms of broader opposition to these projects, um, you know, there are some that question whether or not this is the most important investment that we could make with these dollars. Um, And to that, I would say, you know, in response, the same things that I'd said so far, which is that this is a really critical transportation connection um, for Go Bike, for the vision that we see for the future, where people have more mobility options, um, have options for healthier lifestyles, and have options for less costly uh, transportation choices. Um, this is this kind of facility is absolutely critical. It's a critical component of building a network, and network is what has to happen for this to be realistic. Um, and then another logistical hurdle that we will have to cross is right of way okay. for this. Yeah. So some of it is. A, you know, former railroad corridor, um, but some of it we will have to acquire. And and so that will be a challenge going forward. But again, the fact that we are resourced to be able to do this work uh, makes that a hurdle that I'm sure that we will cross. How much, when we talk about the railway um, right-of-ways, how much space are we talking about in the city of Buffalo? I'm familiar with some of it, but is there really uh, that that much that would that could help this project? Yeah, so the Eastside Trails project itself is about three miles total, mm-hmm. including on and off road connections. So we're only looking at you know a couple of miles of right of way to assemble for this project. Um, but this is just the start. There are plenty of other potential connections. Um, you know, I encourage listeners if you're interested in trails projects to you know head over to gobikebuffalo.org and see more of what we're working on. We do expect to see what other linkages can be coming. Um, Buffalo was built at a time, you know, I mentioned earlier uh, with, you know, we have sidewalks. um, We have a great, you know, historic street grid to work from. Um, We need to make it safer and we need to slow traffic down. But we also have a lot of rail corridors that are linked in to key points in our city. Uh, I don't know much about what's happening currently with Central Terminal, but that's another great example of, you know, infrastructure that's there that can be reactivated and utilized. And so some of these former rail corridors can become, you know, the new artery of our transportation system. Another example of our our, our history is could be our future here in, in Buffalo. Absolutely. Uh, Ashley. 
um, uh, Ashley Smith and uh, Stephanie Simeon with us here uh, for the next 10 minutes on um, what's next Buffalo. Um, Stephanie, what about when you talk to perhaps people that you deal with uh, um, at the um, at your organization? Mm-hmm. When you talk about, throw this idea out there, and again, we're, I mean, we're kind of at the the beginning stages of making this all a reality, but right. what are some of the initial reactions to, oh, we're going to have a, 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 a pathway going through <laughs> the east side. <laughs> so one of the things I just want to add in um, what Ashley beautifully said is that when you talked about barrier, one of the barriers is the paradigm shift. Um, there is a lot of research out there, and um, I'm pretty sure that it's, you know, just from a typical Google, Google search, you can see it, how people of color interact with green space. Um, and there is um, some challenges around how people interact with or what they're giving access to. Okay. So when we talk of, when, we, when you look at, you know, this is me with my housing hat on. Sure. When you look at what uh, created redlined communities, right? Historically, it wasn't, you know, sort of a black issue. It was mostly um, uh, uh, certain Europeans that they considered they didn't want in their neighborhood, so they redlined those communities and created barriers for them to be able to be green-lined communities. Um, when you look at, uh, you separate Buffalo and you see how people are allowed to interact with space, with green space, it is a completely different when you look at a, like an MLK Park area as opposed to an Elmwood Village. Completely different where you have Bidwell, right, Bidwell Parkway, where people can um, use this green space any way that they like, and then on certain days of the week, there's a farmer's market. You can play. You can do whatever you want to do. You have access to these trees, this fresh air. You have these things. There was a Bidwell in the east side. It was now the 33, mm-hmm. <laughs> 33 Expressway. So when we're looking at telling people we're going to have these trails, we're going to have this access, you're going to be able to do these things. We have to deal with the cultural sensitivity issue of how are we uh, have allowed you as a community to interact with green space. So the first thing you're going to come up with is fear. Well, what's happening when I'm on this trail? Um, right. well, well, is somebody going to, you know, is somebody out there, you know, if it's, is it not lit? What's going on is, you know, what, what are these kind of things? And so you're going to, um, you have an already traumatized community now dealing with something where some people would say that would be lovely. I would take, I would take my kids for a walk. I would take my bike for me because I don't bike. I would take a nice, a nice walk or a, a light, a light run or jog. Um, but I also live near Delaware park, right? So that would be a different experience from someone that lives on box street. Um, where there is within a five mile radius, there is no green space. So that idea of what do you do when you have a trailway, most folks are not going to know what to do. So how do people respond when they have a fear? It's just that they're going to push it away. They're going to say, we don't need this in our neighborhood. This is a bad idea. We don't want it. So we're going to come up with some community feedback just because we have a community that has said certain people, based on the zip codes that they are born in, are not allowed to have access to green space. Because So that's, so that's what we're going to have. What we're going to have to do as community-based organizations is then walk people through. So with 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 Go Bike, we had an, an opportunity with the Delavan, um, the bike, was the bike path by the the Skajakwada. Um, we just go out there with you. Mm-hmm. We're going to walk. We're going to walk there with you. We're going to get on our bikes and we're going to do that. And then we, when you come back, we're going to feed you real good food. <laughs> <laughs> 
because this is a community. We love our good food, New Yorkers, right? So we have to figure out ways to to kind of baby steps people and say, sure. you know, as you're a, anticipating. You, that. We're in, yes, yes. Okay. We know for sure that that is going to happen. And I also know, as from personal experience, even though I'm, you know, originally from um, Brooklyn, New York, I didn't have as much exposure to the the green space until I came to Buffalo and I lived in in this neighborhood where I'm down the block from the Buffalo Zoo and that kind of thing it was very foreign to me to be in that space and I didn't feel always welcome that's why you don't hear people saying it when you look at the pictures of people going to Central Park and these other places they do not look like me um and so we have to tell people that that is a right. That is a human right for you to have access to these things. And here's a great way for you to be able to access these things. And that's why we want to join these communities together through these trails. So there's a lot of work that's going to be happening behind the scenes. But we're going to walk the community through and say, we're going to do everything we can to use this as leverage. Because once we can tell people how to maximize the life in their community and, and improve their quality of life, other resources will come for the housing, for the access to healthy foods, for better education opportunities for our kids. It will happen. We just have to start in a place that is palpable to the larger funders. So, Ashley, you're going to reach out. You're going to get input from neighborhoods. But at the same time, as Stephanie just kind of alluded to, you know there's going to be baby steps. What are some of the things that you're Growing up as a person who's involved in policy, what are some of the benefits that you're going to be highlighting and, and trying to assure people that this is going to work out well for their neighborhoods? Sure. We mentioned before this is all public health related mm -hmm. for us. Go Bike is a public health-based organization. Um, this provides an immediate opportunity to get people out walking more. Um, the Surgeon General recommends 30 minutes of walking per day, um, and many of our trips are less than a mile. So a lot of our trips, if the infrastructure is supportive, can be walkable. And so the benefits, again, you know, it relates to our health. It means that we will be healthier, uh, happier. Our mental wellness will improve. All of these have, you know, direct relationship to having access to facilities like this, to having safer sidewalks, mm -hmm. safer crossings. Uh, the business benefits of this come additionally. I come from a Main Streets program mm -hmm. background and economic <laughs> development. Um, you know, I've seen some of the recent work that the Jefferson Avenue Business Association is mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of other organizations, again, around the city that are waiting uh, for the infrastructure to be there to be supportive. Stephanie mentioned redlining. We have a history of mm -hmm. disinvestment mm -hmm. in these communities and again not focusing on the deficits that are there all of these organizations businesses are ready and waiting for that investment and mm -hmm. when we see this investment come through uh, we see the infrastructure improved the benefits are so much greater reaching than I can describe in some of those simple stats we have less than two minutes remaining but I want to get two pieces of information from you Ashley before I finish up with Stephanie um, First and foremost, uh, projected date that this could be completed, and again, the website where people can find out more. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of a projected date, we're looking at at least you know three to four years before we would have a project complete. Mm -hmm. uh, we're getting ready to work you know in earnest coming back from the holiday season to get more public engagement into this process. So the work that we're doing currently, we're wrapping up a feasibility study effort, and we're expecting now, knowing that funding is coming, to roll that directly into additional design work, engineering, and eventually construction. Um, and so from that, again, it's about you know three 
years. We have to assemble some of that right of way. There's quite a bit of technical work that needs to be done in order for these facilities to be real. Uh, we're excited to be aligned with some of the uh, goals of the City of Buffalo Parks Master Plan that has also acknowledged that there is a deficit of resources uh, in these communities. Um, and we'll have to be working with uh, you know, the City of Buffalo closely, the Buffalo Police Department closely. Um, and for people to find out more information, they can go to eastsidetrails.org or go to gobikebuffalo.org and, and into our projects list. No pressure, Stephanie, but 20 <laughs> seconds. Are you optimistic? I am. I'm a hopeless optimist. Buffalo is stronger. We are stronger together. Um, and look, just look at us together here today and seeing what kind of resources we can bring to Buffalo. I doubt it. I, I don't have a doubt in my bone. A bone. A doubt in my body. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie Simeon is the executive director of Heart of the City Neighborhoods. And uh, Ashley Smith is the deputy director of Go Bike Buffalo. We've enjoyed having you talking about this project, and hopefully we can talk about it some more in depth as we move forward. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Shane. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO, WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.